Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. And we're talking about a man by the name of Naaman. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 1 of 2 Kings chapter 5. Go all the way through verse 19. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with a prophet who is in Samaria, he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive? That this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a servant to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, 
before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So Naaman said, Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand and I bow down to the temple in Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. <laughs> Long passage. We're going to take this in parts. We're going to look at Naaman. We're going to look at all that Elisha does. In Luke's gospel, however, not far from where you read, Brother Jackie, just a moment ago, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus refers to this instance. And in that gospel, Jesus used the example of Elisha and Naaman. And of course, Christ had just been baptized in the Jordan by John, and he's gone out already into the wilderness. He'd been tempted by Satan. He's returned, comes back to his hometown, and there goes to the synagogue and reads, opens the scripture, and begins to read. And he says to them, this day is this fulfilled in your ears. And the people knew what he meant. They knew that he was saying, I am Messiah. I am come. Here he is. And they wanted to take and throw him off a high hill, off a precipice, because of the, what they thought was blasphemy, they understood the truth that they were saying. But Jesus, in his rebuke, and before all of this, he says, why was it that no leper in Israel was healed except this Syrian, Naaman, this other man? So Israel and Aram, or what is known as Syria, were ethnically related. There were some, some ties there. Abraham was of the Aramean stock. That's where he had come from, having come from that area of Haran, that's now off into, I guess it'd be southern Turkey, and then all around into what's now um, Iraq. But Jacob was also called in Deuteronomy chapter 26. He's called an Aramean. And in Genesis, Jacob's uncle Laban and his grandfather Bethuel are also referred to as Aramean. Why am I saying that? I'm saying because there's a relationship here. They're of that same tribe. They're a, a somatic people. And they were shepherds. Their lifestyle was semi-nomadic. They, were, they had lived off of the, the herds, the livestock. And oftentimes they lived in small villages and then took care of their livestock, their animals. But one of the Hittite empire, the Hittite empire collapsed. That was about the end of the second millennium before Christ. And the Aramean tribes in Syria grow into powerful city-state nations. And so Syria rises up as a power. And they flourish from the 11th through the 8th centuries before Christ. So now we kind of see what's happened. Here are these people. They are semi-related, 
But now they are at odds with one another. And we come on the scene and we see this man Naaman in chapter, chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria. He was a great and an honorable man. He serves a king by the name of Ben-Hadan. Naaman was a courageous warrior. He's highly regarded. Why? Because God had given him the victories. As a matter of fact, that's what it says. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him, the Jehovah, the Yahweh, had given him victory to Syria. God was using this man, Naaman, he was using this man to cause Israel, his people, to wake up. God had given Syria victories over Israel so that they would come back to him because they had been going for a long time with King Ahab and now his son. That's who we're reading about here, Joram, or he's also known as Jehoram, same person. Your versions will give you a little bit different. But this same king, if you remember about Ahab, do you remember the prophets of Baal and Elisha? Not Elijah, not Elisha. Elijah goes to the Mount Carmel, and there's 450 prophets of Baal, and they're uh, wailing and singing and doing all sorts of things, trying to get their God, Baal, to answer by fire, and no answer comes. God alone, when Elijah prays, sends fire from heaven. Now, if you read in 1 Kings 18, you'll see about that example. But you'll also see that there were 450 prophets of Ashtoreth. Now, they don't show up to Mount Carmel. So there's all kinds of idolatry that's going on in the land. And we know how Elijah was taken up in the chariot. But now Elisha is there, and he is a witness of the Lord living in the northern kingdom. But now this man, who had been given many victories by God, that God had been with him in order to be that source of trials to Israel, that source of discomfort to get them to come back to the Lord. He has leprosy. He's a great and an honorable man in the eyes of his master because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. Now this is not modern day leprosy. And of course in Israel, lepers were outcast. They could not come around. The law said that they had to be removed. They had to be kept away. But that was not so in other nations. If you had leprosy, you could still live among everyone else. You didn't have to be uh, put aside. You didn't have to be moved away. And so Naaman, a leper, is still working as the commander-in-chief. That's the way we know him today. He's the commander of all of the armies of Syria, and he's able to carry on his duties as long as the disease permitted him to do so. The name Naaman, it's a common name of the Old Testament. It's a common name of ancient Syria. It means gracious, fair. 
He was gracious. He was fair. And that we're going to see something about his character, and I think we're going to see that. There are four phrases here that describe the importance of Naaman that we've just looked at. He was the supreme commander of the army of Syria, and that's known by the term commander, the army's highest ranking officer, commander-in-chief. He was a great man. That talks about his social standing. That talks about where he stood. He had prominence. He was well known. When somebody saw Naaman, they recognized, oh, that, that's, that is an important man. He was an honorable man in the eyes of his master, the scripture says. In other words, he's highly regarded by the king. Why? Because of the military victories. But there must have been something about his character. There must have been something about this man. And it says that he was a mighty man of valor. Now that's a term that's used in the Old Testament for both men of great wealth and men that were courageous warriors. So we understand something about this man, Nahum. The disease, he's suffering from this serious, serious skin disease that's going to take his life. And the king of Syria, Ben-Hadon II, by him the Lord had given him victory to Syria. That's what the scripture says. And Naaman's military successes by the hand of God. Now why is it that God would bring about such devastation upon Israel? Well, I think, I'm going to give you a little her theology here. This is my idea. I think we can compare our world because we're seeing more and more diseases. We have a new coronavirus variant. We've had all kinds of, we could go back and we can just look at, you know, all the hepatitis and HIV and all the various flus. We're seeing increase of diseases. We're hearing of wars. There's wars going on. Rumors of wars. Are you hearing about that China might take over Taiwan? They're threatening. They're saying now's the time. We're hearing of rumors of wars. Or that Russia might go into Poland. Rumors of wars. We don't know. I know what the scripture says. <laughs> I know exactly what the, what the scripture says. And we are growing more into like the days of Noah. Violent days where anarchy reigns, where our police are bound. They're not able to, there, there's no punishment. There's nothing that they can do. Their, their hands are tied. We're seeing the cost of fuel rise, which means the price of everything is going to get more and more expensive. And here's my view. I think we're going to see drought increase. That's just my thought which means we'll have increased fires, which means that our world should be looking unto Jesus. That means that all of these things should be looking for his soon coming. That means that, yes, I'm not saying that we're, you know, we're, we're going to be here a year or two years or seven years. I don't know. I'm not going to give you a timetable, but I am saying just like God used Naaman and Syria for Israel to come back to him, I think now is a time where God's irritating our world. <laughs> He's shoving our world to it would be shaken up 
so that people would recognize that the time is short, that the time is now, that we've got to see that we must be looking forward to the coming of the Lord and living in such a way. Now, in the course of these occasional battles that Israel and Syria fought, Naaman's forces capture Israelites and make them slaves. And one of these young girls, whom Naaman had given his wife as a servant, evidently this girl was well appreciative of Naaman and his wife. They must have treated her well, because if they had mistreated her, why would she care that this man could be healed by a prophet of God? Why would she care about this man? And that's what, and it says, verse 2, And the Assyrians had gone out on raids and had brought back a captive young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. You see, she, she recognized there was a sense that she knew that she cared for this, this couple. They must have been a very gracious couple. And so no leper in Israel was healed. That doesn't mean that there were not lepers in Israel, but none of them were seeking the Lord. This girl, this girl, we don't know her name. She's here in the pages of God's word. She's an important person, but no attributes to her, no, no uh, fanfare to her. She's saying, oh, wait, there's a man of God in Israel. I wonder if that's not a rebuke on the king of Israel, Jehoram. It would be well if we were likewise just as sensitive to the damage that sin does in our lives as we are to diseases. There's all kinds of diseases running rampant, and we're well aware we're well aware of how our bodies break down. We're well aware of all of the problems. But when we're seeking the blessings which the Lord sends by his prayers, then we become as beggars asking for that free gift, looking for the hope that only we can come to the throne of a grace. Only can we come to that foot of the cross because these people, they couldn't come as the commander. They can't come as commander-in-chief. You've got to humble yourself. And verse 3 says that there was a prophet in Israel. So now we have Elisha introduced. And this prophet of Israel, Elisha maintains a house in the city of Samaria. Now that's up in the northern kingdom. Remember, at this time, Israel had a southern kingdom, two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. They were known as the kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom, there were ten tribes. And that was known as Israel. And Elisha lives in Samaria, the capital. He keeps a house there. Why? Because the city needed a witness. The city needed somebody who would tell about the Lord. The city needed someone who would ring the bell that would cause them to come back to the Lord their God, the true Lord. 
And so he had Syria as that irritation, and they had a man of God, the prophet of God, living there, sounding forth the word. And people knew, this young girl knew that was a man of God. That is a prophet. This city needs a witness. This city needs you to be the witness because we are just in the same spot that this city doesn't recognize that they're sin sick. And yet we have the cure in Jesus Christ. We have the only way that they can know freedom from that sin is at the foot of the cross. There was a prophet in Samaria, and Elisha is held up there. And this Aramean king, this Syrian king, takes the valuable commander. He wants to send him up to be cleansed, not only because he's a trusted friend, but because the dreaded disease is going to rob the king of his, of his commander-in-chief. And Naaman sets out to visit King Joram, and he's assigned, and it's assumed that he's going to order the prophet to cure him. That's what he says in verse, uh, verse 4. Let's pick up 4, 5, 6. And Naaman went in and told his master, goes up to Ben-Hadad, and he tells him, this is what's happening. Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, and I'll pick up there in just a moment. Let me tell you what's in this. In the ten talents of silver, that's about 750 pounds of silver. And then 600 shekels is about 150 pounds of gold and ten sets of clothing. All of these are very prized Amount. So you can imagine, here comes Nahum, and he's got his servants with him, carrying all of these great gifts and great wealth, so you know there is armed men there. And he carries a letter to King Joram, requesting in matter-of-fact terms that Nahum be cured. Now the king of Israel, also called Jehoram, what does he say? And because in verse 6 it said, here's what the letter reads, Now be advised when this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. This was not an uncommon way in the ancient East to send letters. It was not uncommon to just say, this is what we want. And then in the interview between the emissary of the king and the other king, that then they would work out the details. But King Jehoram doesn't see that. King Joram doesn't recognize any of that. Now, you know, when you're communicating, you know, some of the basics of communication is what I actually say. When you're talking to someone, it's what you actually say. And then what I think I said or what I intend to say. Or then it comes to the other person and what you hear me say. And then as we interpret that, and it's then what you think I'm saying. So you see the problems in communication. You see how difficult communication can be. Because really what I think I'm saying, I may not really bring that point across. And what you think I'm trying to say, you might say, well, we'll work it out like this. Ever had someone tell you a simple truth that just spoke to your life, spoke to your heart? 
That's what the Proverbs talk about of the apples of gold and settings of silver. Those words of truth that just work in your life and in your heart. And somehow it just was the right thing to say at the right time. That's hard to do. That's not what we have here, is it? Not at all, because look at verse 7. Now it happened when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Who am I? Am I God? And literally it says, Am I the God? Joram knows the God. Joram knows Yahweh, Jehovah God, he knows who this God is. And that's what he says. Am I the God that can just heal people? Am I the God that has this power? Jehoram knows who is right. And yet is allowing and even himself is involved in all kinds of idolatry. Idolatry was spread all through the land. There, what am I going to do? When the king of Israel read the letter, he rent his clothes. He tore them. And that was the ancient practice, this burst of emotion. It wasn't horror. And it wasn't horror at the supposed blasphemy. Because realize that that's what he's saying. Am I the God? That this other king thinks I'm such... He's not saying, oh, wait a minute. Such blasphemy. No. This is a trick. That's what he says. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. This man's picking a fight. This man is just looking for a fight. Have you ever seen people that were just aching for a fight, just trying to provoke? But here's this burst of emotion. He wasn't thinking about the true God. He wasn't thinking about the God that could really do something. He wasn't thinking about Elisha or even of the miraculous deeds that I'm sure he'd heard of. He just says, am I God? Instead of trying to seek the Lord and Elisha or the God of Israel never enters his mind, he wants as little contact with Elisha as he could possibly have. Do you know people that just don't want to have contact with God's people? They just don't want to have, I don't want to have to face what that might come in contact, what that might look like. And so Jehoram knew that it was impossible, that he's doomed, and now he's going to have this major battle. And what happens? Verse 8. Let's look at 8 through 10. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes. By the way, how did Elisha hear? We don't know whether it was broadcast throughout the land. Uh-oh. We're going to war with Syria. Or if God had made it known to him. Scripture doesn't make that clear. But we might just imagine that the Lord, and I like to think that the Lord just let Elisha the prophet know, this is what's happening with the king. And so that he heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. There's the key verse we're going to look at. Then Nahum went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. There's the answer. Simple as that. But oh, Elisha is not convinced that this man is anything. 
Elisha doesn't go out to meet him. He sends word, send him to me. The king sends him to Elisha. He shows up and the simple prescription is given. Seven dunks in the muddy stream. Seven dunks in the Jordan River. Simple as that. Didn't need to go out. He wasn't awed by the commander in chief is here. This great man is here. He's not awed by the presence of all of the entourage. He doesn't even, doesn't care. Why? Because Elisha knows who the true God is. And one man is just like another man. Every man is the same. The contrast of the commander and the prophet, Elijah didn't want Nahum to look at him like he was God, like anything was, that he could do it. Elisha didn't want him to see the cure was not in the water of the Jordan. The cure was not in the prophet. The cure was in obedience by faith in Jesus Christ. The cure was believing God and recognizing what God could do. He's not awed by this great general. He just sends the messenger out. And I love this. Verse 11. Now Nahum became furious, and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. He's upset. He's so angry. Why? Because Nahum has a preconceived of this is what God should do. This is what the man of God should do. This is how it ought to be. And when God doesn't follow our ideas, sometimes it's easy to get mad at God. Sometimes it's easy to get upset because surely Nahum thought my personal greatness. Also, look at this huge gift I have, all the silver, all the gold, the raiment. Look at all that I have. I'm a great man. I have a diplomatic letter. I have a letter from the king of Syria telling you you've got to do this. Nahum turns away from Elisha's house angry. Why? Two reasons. His pride. His pride has been offended by Elisha's offhanded treatment of him. He'd expected this great ceremony. Make a big show of it. This wonderful ceremony where everybody could see that a look, this man of dignity was healed by the God of Israel. He resented having been told to wash in the muddy river. He considered that very inferior to Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, the rivers in his hometown. The water of Jordan, he thought, couldn't possibly do him any good. As a matter of fact, that's what he says. Nahum becomes furious. In verse 12, are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters in Israel? Why, after all, these rivers were used and orchards had come about and great gardens and the farmers used them all around and there was clean, fresh water. What about this old muddy Jordan? Could not I wash in them and be clean? And he turned and went away in a rage. Sometimes when God doesn't act like we think he should act, we get offended. We get hurt. We think, God, this is the way you should do it. Now, I can come up with all kinds of plans, come up with all kinds of schemes, and I want to just say, Lord, this is how we're going to do it. Wrong. And the Lord has to sometimes show me, no, I'm going to do it simple going to do it without all the fanfare. I'm going to do it so that you don't get the glory. I'm going to do it so that people recognize that it was God that did it, and not Elisha, 
not the Jordan River. You know, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. That's what 1 Peter 5 tells us. As we pray about our concerns and we give him the assignments and we're asking God to take care of certain things, sometimes they're small things in the eyes of this world. We have to recognize like Naaman learned, saying yes to God in the simple step of obedience begins to lead to the spiritual victory, begins to lead to seeing something else. The Abana River that began in Lebanon and flows down into Damascus, clear, pretty water. The Farpar River flowed from Mount Hermon on into Damascus. And if Naaman needed to wash, these rivers were so much better. However, Elijah had not gone out to meet him, sends instructions to obey. And Naaman becomes so angry. When we look at the root of our discouragement, when we become so discouraged, it's unbelief. God doesn't act like we think we want him to. What discourages you? What is it that discourages you? Not making enough money? Not making it. I'm just not making. And I mean, prices are skyrocketing all around. Are you convinced that God can and will supply all of your needs? Or is it disbelief? Are you frustrated with your job? Are you frustrated with your life situation? Because we've refused to believe that we can be content in whatever state we are. And I don't mean state of the union, but whatever condition we're in, disbelief causes discouragement. Are you worried about health problems? Is not our God the same great physician that is right here? Is our God not the same that is able to take care? And if we die and if we go to be with the Lord, how much better? There's only one way to get rid of that discouragement. And it's not in your own strength. It's not in your own ingenuity. But we wait on the Lord. It says, wait on the Lord and be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Psalm 27. Believe and trust. That's what Nahum learns. That's the same Nahum learned. And look at verse 13. And his servants come near and spoke to him and said, My father. Now, how is it that the servants, and we see something about the character of Nahum here. My father. They're reasoning with him. They're compelling him. They're coming to him simply. My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? How is it that sometimes that voice of reason, that voice of truth just speaks to our heart? The commander's servants, they hadn't been put down personally. They had not been personally offended. Their master had. But maybe they could step back and they could view the whole situation a little more objectively. They could see what was going on. They approach him tenderly appealing to him as a father. Father, be reasonable. They pointed out that it was not as though Elijah had given them some difficult job to do. It was a simple job. What harm would it be in giving this remedy a try? And undoubtedly feeling maybe rather ashamed, Nahum humbles himself and he obeys the word of the Lord. He obeyed in faith. And what happens? Well, let's just see. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God. Now, seven is the mark of God. 
We know that. I mean, we can get off into Bible numbers and Bible numerology, and you can get lost in all that, but let me just tell you the simple truth. Seven is the number of God. In seven days he created. All of this, we're seeing the hand of God. Seven, seven dips. It was the hand of God that did this. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. This was the mark of God. They could see this was something that God alone could do, that he looked like a little child. All of those years of sun damage and whatever it might have been, all of that was gone. And unfortunately, many in Israel, including our king, had not come to the same realization that Naaman had. In verse 15, and he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him. And he said, indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. There is a God that was in Israel. Let me tell you that this God is the same God today. He is the same God that is able to do exactly this. And now we see Nahum's gratitude. Nahum recognizes the man of God had not performed this miracle. The Jordan River had not performed this miracle. It was his simple obedience and believing in God. There is no God except in Israel. Naaman confesses that Israel's God is the Lord. And he began to believe both in the Lord and God's working and recognizing. Now, in the land of Israel, they were serving Jehovah God and they were serving Baal and Ashtaroths, all these other false gods. And later, even Molech. They tried to play both ends. Well, you know, I'll, I'll go and I'll ask God, but if he doesn't do it, then I'm going to ask Baal, and maybe Baal will do it. There was a really interesting book written, I read it many years ago, that Israel followed after these false gods because they did some benefit to them. There was some benefit to them serving these false gods. And that book written by this Jewish author showed how these same false gods are still in our world today. Still, people are following after the same false gods. Name and recognize there is no God in all of the earth. And what happens? Israel's trying to play both sides. We've got to watch out for hypocrisy in our own lives, where we try to play both ends, where we have outward service to Jehovah, but we serve the world and we're going after. It's real easy to begin to box up, well, this is church, and this is how I am in the world. Or I'm going to act like this around God's people, but I act like this when I'm around certain other friends. And that's hypocrisy. It's putting on two faces. That's what Israel was doing. That's what Naaman is faced with. There is a true God who deals with the heart of man, that deals with us. There is no God except in Israel. Israel's God, even though Israel had gone off full of hypocrites, Look at verse 16. But he said, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. That is Elisha saying that. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. In other words, I'm not going to fall into the same habits as the false prophets. Now, Elisha had taken gifts of others. If you can look over in chapter 4 and you can see where Elisha had received other gifts. But Naaman recognized that it was only God that could do this. And look at verse 17 and 18. So Naaman said, 
Then, if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth, for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Why did Naaman think this? The common thought was that gods were bound to the earth, that they were bound to the land where they were, which is true if you look at demons. There are principalities and powers. There's areas where certain demons work. That's the authority that Satan has set up in his kingdom. But he's bringing that over into spiritual aspects. And he's saying there's no God except the God of Israel. In other words, I'm going to take some of Israel with me, and then, then the God of Israel can come with me. But our God is greater than the earth. He's the creator of it. He is the creator of all this world. There is nowhere if we go off into the far planets. He's there. The psalmist said, if I make my bed in hell, he's there. Where can I go to escape? He says, give me two mule loads of earth. Elijah says, sure. Take them. Go ahead. If that's going to make you happy, if you think God is bound to that two mule loads of earth, go for it. As long as you're recognizing the true Lord, the true God. And that's when he says, but wait a minute, my king is going to demand something. I mean, now this is not an Israelite. Naaman is a Syrian. Yet in this thing, may the Lord, verse 18, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and, and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said, go in peace. And he departed a short distance. It's interesting because the Hebrew word rimen means pomegranate, and, and it's a joke, it's a parody of the Syrian deity for the god Rananu, which is the thunder god. In English, it's hard to bring over, but you see exactly in the Hebrew what Elisha is saying and what's being told here. He's saying, you go, you go to that little god that you think that pomegranate. He's no greater than a pomegranate, this thunder, thunderer. Now this God was the same as the Canaanite God, Baal, that false God. And as an aid to Syria's king Naaman's duty required that he go with the king to the religious duty. But he says, my heart isn't there. Naaman requested, Lord, forgive me, because this is what I have to do in my job. Lord, forgive me of my compromise. Isn't it good to know that God makes a way so that we don't have to compromise? Some principles that we can learn. Surely he will come out and call on the name of the Lord his God. And when God doesn't make the show that we expect, he prefers to do his work, by the way, in quiet. He prefers to do his work in subtle ways. Hearing that still small voice. How many teachers, preachers, worship people stand up and want to bring attention to themselves? That was never the case of the apostles. The apostles always said, let me tell you about this man, Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus, that one who was the chief cornerstone that you disallowed, the one that you pierced, the one that you crucified. Let us always tell you about Jesus. Elisha doesn't say anything about himself. He's telling about the God of Israel. And like those in Israel, we can sometimes take God's word for granted. We can come to that place where we take coming to services for granted, thinking they're always going to be there. It's always going to continue on just as we have. 
But our world is heading for chaos. My belief, my thought. This world is full of hypocrisy. Putting one's belief, we wear this belief now, we wear this face now, we wear that face later. God is asking for our simple obedience and trust. He's asking for seven dunks. Seven simple steps of obedience. Here you go. Just obey. You may not understand why, but we just obey. Because God said so. Because this is God's prescription. Because this is what the Lord would have us to do. And we just say, Lord, here am I. If I have to go dunk seven times, I'll be obedient. I'll be obedient. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions, or perhaps you have questions on a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website, or you can reach us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Is no longer dead.